Well, we want to welcome you to Michael Easley in Context, where we look at the scripture in the context in which it is written, and we try to apply it in the context of our lives. I've got a great friend, actually former professor. He's a lot older than me on the broadcast today, Kirby Anderson. Kirby is the president of Probe Ministry. He is the host of the nationally syndicated Point of View radio talk show. If you're not familiar with that, before this podcast is over, you need to search Kirby, K-E-R-B-Y. Do not use an I. He doesn't like that. K-E-R-B-Y, Kirby Anderson, and search for his Point of View program. Kirby holds a master's from Yale University and Georgetown University. He's a visiting professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. He's spoken at numerous campuses across the U.S., including Vanderbilt, Princeton, Johns Hopkins, and others. He's married, the father of three grown children, one grandchild. And well, you actually taught a course when I did my doctoral program at Dallas Seminary, and I still have all the books you made me read. I still remember getting like 11 texts for that assignment. And one of the standouts was Herbert Schlossberg's Idols for Destruction. That's right. What a remarkable book. It was a good book. And again, a lot of those were books that were looking at some of the cultural changes. And today we're going to talk about some of the uh, surveys that we have done over these years because we've recognized that some things are changing in the world. Well, for folks who don't yet know you on In Context, give us a little history about Probe Ministries, your involvement, and how you became kind of a subject matter expert for so many topics, Kirby. Well, again, I joined Pro Ministries back in 1976, so I guess that makes it 45 years. Uh, Pro Ministries actually started in 1973, so uh, it is coming up on uh, eventually going to be its 50th anniversary, and it wow. was started in large part because of the influence of a couple of individuals that founded it, Jimmy Williams and John Buell, that had been with Campus Crusade, but also been reading Francis Schaeffer. And we have always been kind of a worldview apologetics ministry. So a number of years ago, we began to say, when we do these conferences, there seems to be less interest. And we also noticed a really remarkable drop-off in terms of uh, Christian commitment. So back in uh, 2010, we did a survey which was looking at what we call culturally captive Christians. And we did that looking primarily at born-again millennials, born-again Americans. And then uh, 10 years later, we said, well, we need to come back and look at this again, not only just at the millennial generation, but now not only Generation Y, but Generation Z, and uh, look at uh, not only just Christians, but the broader group, because we wanted to also look at what was happening with what I call the unaffiliated. That would be what some people call the nuns, but uh, sometimes people get confused when you say that, but it would be the idea of atheist, agnostic, and no preference. So anyway, Pro Ministries, uh, this group I've been with for 45 years. You mentioned Point of View. It's next year going to be celebrating its 50th anniversary. It was started by Marlon Maddox in 1972, and I'm the host of that. They're two different organizations, but it allows me, first of all, to be dealing with a worldview apologetics ministry, and then to do a talk show where I'm viewing all sorts of people talking about politics and all the various issues, as well as theology and apologetics as well. So that's kind of my background. And um, in some respects, I've been able to bring it to some of the classes that I've been able to teach, including the one that you had to sit through. No, I loved it. It was high watermark for my uh, doctoral program. I remember um, so many of the great discussions we had, and we were talking about women's roles, egalitarian, complementarian, divorce, remarriage, all that stuff now that's almost passe. 
you know, but many years ago, those were crucial topics. Let's jump into this. You mentioned 2010 and you came back in 2020 and did a, a similar, if not, you know, the same kind of survey. And you headed this, uh, do Christians believe in Christ as the only savior of the world? And if I understand the survey correctly, there were three broad parameters you were after. So walk us through a little bit about the big picture, and then I'm going to drill down on some specific questions and get your opinion on some of the data. Well, the first thing we found is that, as I said, when we did this follow-up survey, we wanted to try to answer some questions. You know, you've heard people say that since uh, a young person graduates from high school, he or she oftentimes takes a break from church. But we've always been assured by Christian leaders, well, they'll come back again. And so we wanted to look at that issue. We also wanted to look at the issue of the increase in the number of the unaffiliateds, which have almost tripled during that time. But back to the points you're making, we were also recognizing recognizing, even when we did some of these surveys years ago, that people would say, well, I think your survey or your data is a one-off. And so we wrote some books and we have stuff on the Probe website in which we spent some time looking not only just at our surveys, but surveys from, say, the Barner Research Group and from the Pew Research Group and from what's called GSS, the General Social Survey. And if you really drill down, Michael, what you find is the same kinds of things that we have been talking about for some time. And that is young people are leaving the faith or not coming to the faith in significant numbers. Those that are in the faith, those that maybe attend church, they don't necessarily always have an orthodox worldview. And so if you are concerned about the future of Christian missions, Christian organizations, even Christian broadcasting and churches, you'd have to be saying, okay, these are some things we really need to pay attention to. And so by getting those numbers, by asking some really specific questions about uh, whether or not you uh, really true believe in a biblical view of God, a biblical view of Jesus Christ, a biblical view of salvation, we're able to add to a lot of the surveys that have been done over these last couple of years, but aren't necessarily digging into some of the theological issues that you and I think about every single day. When we diagnose these things endlessly, and I know at some level it's a fool's errand, but uh, as a pastor, most of the 41 years I've been doing, quote, ministry, close quote, the church is blamed for everything. <laughs> we're blamed for, you know, marriages, we're blamed for, you know, whatever. And it's, you look at student ministries, as they're now called, and they become entertainment at some level. They're not teaching the Bible. Of course, if you try to teach the Bible, you don't have kids. And this circular conversation goes on endlessly. Kirby, you've lived this data for close to 50 years. When you look at it, are two, three, is it social media? Is it the church's fault? Is it, what is it? Why are young people disenfranchised from their father's old mobile, their father's or mother's church? Well, and again, I think you could say that some of this was happening for some time. You can use some big philosophical words like postmodernism, that you have your truth and I have my truth and someone else has a different truth. And we'll get into that because we ask questions about truth and tolerance and those kinds of things. But you did identify something that is one of the reasons why I don't blame pastors, because think this through. The Kaiser Family Foundation has done some really good research, and they have found that if you look at the typical young person, and I'm going to focus most of our time and attention on Generation Y, Millennials, and Generation Z, the so-called iGen generation, the average individual spends about 10 hours a day in front of a screen. 
That could be a cell phone, it could be a movie screen, it could be a video screen, it could be a computer screen. I've seen numbers that are higher, but let's just use 10 hours a day. Multiply that by seven days, that's 70 hours of media input, and you've got to counteract that with what? A 45-minute sermon. Who wins? Now, the bottom line is, is maybe that gets back to the point that parents should not outsource the education of their kids to a one-hour sermon or a youth group. I'm the first to say that I understand that youth groups have to be fun. I can't count the number of times I've had a pie in my face or I've had to put one of those surgical masks on my head, blow them up and explode. So I'm all about fun. You are too. But the reality is that we also need to recognize that these youth groups are boot camp. But you're asking a lot of the pastor, you're asking a lot of the youth leader to take care of what obviously needs to happen in the home. And we are facing something that is unprecedented because especially when you talk about Generation Z, the so-called iGen generation, the reason that they have been called that is because they are digital natives. There's never been a time when they've been alive that they haven't had an iPhone or an iPad or something like that. So I recognize that youth ministry has always been a challenge. It's a greater challenge now. And I'm not blaming pastors, but I am recognizing that the cultural circumstances have made it even more of a challenge for us in the 21st century. And so what we should do is make sure that we're teaching at home. Number two, pastors need to recognize that we've surfaced enough data to say that you may assume that your congregation uh, have orthodox beliefs, but it might be time for you to do maybe a series on essential doctrines of the face or essential gospel or something, because we have demonstrated as well, even in church settings where there has been very good Bible teaching, the congregation oftentimes doesn't have an orthodox view. And my one example I use is there was one survey which we did in an entire church, not far from where we're broadcasting, and uh, the pastor there, as a professor at Dallas Seminary in Old Testament, so you got to believe he's probably given pretty good teaching. But it was shocking to see how many people, even in his own church, weren't necessarily giving orthodox answers to some of those questions. To be fair to him, there had been a tornado nearby in one of these sort of liberal Methodist churches. Some of the people were coming into the congregation. But just because you're preaching good theology from the pulpit doesn't mean necessarily people are always hearing it. And I think it just was, again, a wake-up call that whether it's pastors, Sunday school teachers, whoever it might be, everybody from parents to teachers need to make sure that the individuals that are in your sphere of influence have an orthodox view and understand some of the basic cultural challenges we face today in the 21st century. You mentioned in brief uh, the post-modernity, and that's an endless, bottomless pit to discuss, but the what's true for you, nomenclature, what's true for me. Kirby, it, it seems to me, once we lost an authoritative baseline, Scripture is true, Scripture is without error, and that shifted tectonically. I use the illustration, you're in a small group, and you read a verse, and the leader says, what's this verse mean to you? And I want to scream and say, I don't care what it means to you. What does it mean? (laughs) Let's talk about what the Bible's saying, and then we can apply it. We can talk about how we are impacted by that passage. But I don't care what you think that means to you. But pejoratively, at the same time, to stand up and, I mean, I have friends here in, in Middle Tennessee that completely changed the pulpit approach. They're no longer teaching Scripture. They're trying to relate experientially and emotionally. And so Hendricks used to say every incoming class had less Bible literacy 
than the one before. I would argue they have no Bible literacy today. And then that falls somewhat incumbent to the pastor, not to bow to culture. But if I do that, Kirby, they're all going to leave. They'd much rather go down to a church not far from you in a huge arena with 25,000 people to feel good as opposed to sit at that church you aforementioned with an Old Testament scholar opening the Word and teaching it. Right. And I think that illustrates the point. First of all, I go to a mega church, so and that certainly is one that is Bible teaching. So you can teach the Bible and you can draw an audience. But I think one of the great challenges, Michael, really is the fact that we have in these surveys identified a lot of the so-called unaffiliated, sometimes called the nuns. And if you go and ask them fundamental questions, about emotional issues. These generations, the so-called emerging generations, have a higher level of anxiety, a higher level of depression. Of course, we've just been through a pandemic and a lockdown, sometimes more suicidal thoughts. So they really have some needs, and there's a need to figure out how to connect those needs to the Bible, those needs to the church, those needs to Jesus Christ. And again, being relevant, I know that's a buzzword and sometimes misinterpreted, but if you can show the relevance of that, that works. We find that most of these individuals that aren't going to church, they aren't necessarily hostile. They're not people that have been reading mm-hmm. Daniel Dennett and my a uh, variety of people like Sam Harris and uh, Richard Dawkins and people like that. They are mostly just think that religion doesn't have anything to say to them. They don't really think that the problems they have can find an answer in Christianity, can find an answer in the person of Jesus Christ. So making those connections, I think, is going to be really important. And you're right, for the people that are in church and maybe a little bit bored, I mean, we're going to have to work a little bit harder for those individuals. But the bottom line is, is that once you start making the connections between your life And what the Bible has to say, people are going to be drawn to that. And I think that's going to be the real challenge in the 21st century, because back to social media, we have people that have a pretty low tolerance for information and a very limited attention span. So you got to work at it harder. But I think it's something we can still do in the 21st century. Well, I want to get later to talk about hope a little bit, but let's get discouraged a little bit more before... (laughs) Before we go there, in your survey, you break these out as born-again Protestant, other Protestant, Catholic, other religion, and unaffiliated. When I first read through this, I was disturbed that we have to have a differentiation between Protestant that's born again and other. Help me understand this. Well, one of the reasons we did that is because uh, we use a, and have for many years used the George Barna uh, criterion by which we say, are you born again? Now, what does that mean? Well, only God can separate sheep and goats, but again, I think the questions he's asked over the years are important, and that is, have you had a born-again experience in the past that is still relevant to you today? And number two, do you believe that you are saved by grace? Now, we can come up with all sorts of questions that we could ask in addition to that, but that is really kind of the issue, and if you have some kind of belief on what will happen when you die, that you go to heaven because you confess your sins and accept Jesus Christ, we consider you to be born again. And then the other Protestants would be people that are sometimes in denominational churches, and so we break that out because there is, I think, a striking difference between people that have had a born-again experience and actually are trusting in Jesus Christ versus those people that are in the church. And anybody that's ever been in a church knows that you end up with some people you're saying, 
I'm really not sure if they're Christian or not. So by breaking that out, it helps us see some really different kind of reactions to some of the very important questions that we ask about worldview, because the worldview questions then get into questions about, uh, do you believe that there's an all-powerful, all-knowing God? Do you believe that the Bible is accurate? Do you believe that people are able to save themselves by good works? You know, uh, do you believe that Jesus committed sins? And once you start asking those questions, you begin to realize something else, and that is we have a number of people, this shouldn't surprise you, that are in the church that have had a born-again experience. I think we could probably say, with especially some of the interviews we've done, that they are born again in their heart, but they're not thinking biblically in their heads. And I've had people challenge that. You know, Some people say, well, maybe they're not born again. And I remember Kay Arthur saying that, or Oz Guinness saying that. I said, yeah, but when you became a Christian, was your theology perfect at that time? And of course they said, well, no. So is it possible somebody could actually be born again, but not have the kind of consistent theology of Michael Easley? Yeah, I think there's a possibility of that. And so we break that out because it's really key to help us understand that sometimes when we talk about the church, we say, well, they may not even be Christians. They just may be seekers in the church, maybe. But we also recognize the biggest chronic problem we have right now is the younger you are, the less likely you are to be orthodox. But it doesn't necessarily mean that they're not born-again Christians. We uh, differentiate salvation and sanctification. I think sometimes those are commingled. There's a point in time salvation when a person walks the aisle, prays the prayer, puts their trust in Christ and Christ alone for their salvation, that he lived, that he died, that he was buried, he came back from the dead, and they're trusting in Christ to do for them what they cannot do for themselves. Now, growing is a different issue, and the growth yes. is where we all struggle and you know, throw the cigarettes away, pour the booze out, quit womanizing, and walk the aisle. No. Walk the out metaphorically, trust Christ, and then the Holy Spirit will work on you and me to get rid of the proclivities we have. And so we agree on this, but the big breakdown in your survey is chilling. Just two-thirds of born-again Protestants strongly agree that Jesus will return. The more disheartening one to me was that Jesus committed sins like other people. It's like, where did mom and dad fail at the breakfast table, at the devotions at night? Where did the, I mean, it's like, goodness gracious, if he's a sinner, then we're all toast. You know, it's, it's such a tectonic change. And one of the final graphs, I'm jumping around a bit, the trend down was what was just startling. It's figure eight on your last decades there, where you go from, you know, on your three things in 2010, the number of born again Christians to where we are at 2020. It's just striking, Kirby. That the it's like we've fallen off a cliff. And back to your point, you know, we were asking questions: uh, if, Can a person be saved through Jesus, Muhammad, and Buddha? And you'll have people going yes. And you know, on the other hand, you have orthodox oh. views. So the way I've made sense of this is one of the people I enjoy interviewing on a regular basis is George Barnum. And his surveys, he has come to the conclusion that the predominant worldview in America today. It's not Christianity, obviously, but it's not humanism. It's not Marxism. It's not critical race theory. The dominant worldview today is syncretism. Now, it's another one of those big yep. words that's basically a cafeteria theology, and that's true outside the church, and it's true inside the church. 
Now, one of the things we surfaced uh, more than 10 years ago when we started doing some of this, and this is why we did it in the first place, because we're kind of a worldview apologetics ministry. Why do we get into surveys? Because we're recognizing that we would be teaching people, maybe how do you respond to a question that somebody asks that about salvation or about evil or about whatever it might be, deity of Jesus Christ. And we're recognizing that we had people that were syncretistic. In other words, they had picked up some of their theology from the church, if they were in the church, they picked up some of their theology by watching Oprah Winfrey. They picked up some of their theology by talking to some of their friends. And they actually went into Christian bookstores and sometimes read a book, but sometimes those bookstores weren't necessarily always having orthodox views. And so we began to understand that for the millennial generation, Generation Y, and even more true now for the Generation Z, they tend to be syncretistic. In other words, they will have contradictory ideas. A born-again Christian would say, why did Jesus die on the cross to purchase our redemption? Good answer. Why did, will Jesus return again? Yes, I strongly believe he will. Did Jesus commit sins? Yeah, Jesus committed sins. Wait a minute. You know, you start running into this. But do you believe that you were saved by faith, by grace? Yes. Do you believe that people can be saved through Buddha, Muhammad, and Jesus? Yes. Right now, I can see your head almost exploding because I recognize that we know that those are contradictory ideas, but sometimes in the same people, we get those same kind of statements being made. And that is an unwillingness to address the issue of logical contradictions in a person's worldview. Now, to be fair, all of us have probably some logical contradictions, yes. but these are really big ones. And it illustrates again, when we talk about action points, pastors need to sort of take that into account when you have such a large percentage of individuals that are believing in pluralism, which is a way of saying believing that God is going to save a lot more people, then I think it's uh, incumbent upon you to come back and say, okay, John fourteen six, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. What does that mean? And really address that issue because there is a culture that says I'm supposed to be non-judgmental, I'm supposed to be tolerant, which they define as meaning affirming any viewpoint. And so it's important to recognize that we are living in a world where people are becoming captive to the culture. Colossians 2.8 says we should not be taken captive by false philosophy, but we have a lot of people that may be born again but they're captive Christians because they've accepted some philosophies from the world rather than from the Bible. When you talk about syncretism and pluralism, my mind always goes to the coexist bumper sticker and the different iterations of that. In Middle Tennessee, if you don't own a gun, you're really not a bona fide volunteer Tennessean. And they have these coexist things that are made out of different guns. If you've seen them, they're quite delightful. But it illustrates that the mantle of our fireplace is every one of these Buddha, Confucius, yes. be true to yourself nomenclature. And because we don't read, because the instantaneous visual media most, and now what strikes me, Kirby, is it's not tablets and computers, it's phones. Yes, so it the is. amount of information and the quickness with which people scroll through it, you're not getting any intellectual stimulation information. It's just a visual neurosynaptic you know, high, but there's no content there. So we're fighting a lot of uphill battles here. I long for the time when Jesus is talking to a woman at the well. Yes. I long for the time when he's walking around the Sea of Galilee and they've had a charcoal fire with some fish on it and they're talking. And it almost seems that our culture is so maddeningly up to date 
with whatever Pinterest, Instagram, TikTok, whatever. Oh, that Jesus stuff, that Christianity stuff. Oh, by the way, reading your survey is disheartening, but we've got to go to how do we, you've already mentioned this, how do we help? How do we work alongside this? One, you've talked about parenting in the home. Two, I've changed completely. I used to be a 100% public school guy, and I'm on record saying if you're not in a tutorial, you're crazy. You need to be in a classic education, a charter school, or a tutorial, or you're crazy. And it's not that people in public schools aren't trying to do a good job. It's that critical thinking's out the window. It's indoctrination. It's this is the only way. And I want my children and grandchildren to think. If they critically think and make a bad decision, fine. But don't force feed them with one decision. And uh, these tutorials, I don't know about your area, but they are doing a great job in Middle Tennessee because you've got the professional educators who are teaching them how to think critically and how to read and how to write a sentence and diagram. And all this goes to the neuroplasticity that we understand so much better today. But absent, you know, that course correction, I don't have a lot of hope, Kirby. I have hope in the gospel and I have hope in the personal work of Christ. But our country and the churches and the, quote, evangelical message seems to be awash. Yeah. Well, again, I'll be the first to say that uh, this is a challenge. And as we sometimes say in some of our articles, that if you go to AD 60 and say what a percentage of the Roman Empire was Christian, well, I think it's a fraction of a fraction of a percent. We have a lot more going for us today in the 21st century than Christians in the first century. But there are a couple of action items. One of those is I think we need to define terms because one of the things we found is young people redefine tolerance. And it's uh, reminiscent of the Princess Bride. Remember where he says at one point, you know, you keep using that word, but I don't think you uh, know what it means, you know, and there's a sense in which tolerance should mean and should be defined, I think, even in the church and in critical thinking and any kind of education that we have to mean that we may disagree with an individual, but that doesn't mean we have to affirm or celebrate that. And yet we had a good number of born again Christians saying, I agree with the statement. It's important to let people know that I affirm as true their religious beliefs and practices. So we need to teach that critical thinking. If you listen to the radio program I do every day, Point of View, the key word we've been talking about this year is discernment. I actually bring people on to educate the uh, parents sometimes on how to do critical thinking. And we also do a Millennial Roundtable next week. Uh, We'll be doing another one of those um, where they don't let old guys like me around the roundtable, but I have some of the best and brightest millennials relating to other millennials about that. So I think teaching uh, critical thinking, wisdom, logic, uh, certainly defining our terms are all going to be really important issues in the 21st century. And even if we can't turn the culture around, we are still the remnant that God has called for us to be. And uh, if you want to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world right now, I think the real challenge, Michael, is that a lot of millennials, and this shows up in the survey a lot, are saying, you know, I'd be more interested in Christianity if I saw what it looked like. But, and that, I used the word relevant a minute ago, but another word is authenticity. I did an interview the other day where this one millennial used the word authentic or authenticity so many times. I was thinking, are you getting paid by the word? Because it is a big issue. But what they're really saying is, look, you live in Nashville, Tennessee area. I live in Dallas area. 
I've talked to people that live in maybe Maine or Vermont or New Hampshire because we have radio stations there. Next week, I'm going to be in Oregon. And of course, I've been in Washington and also places like that. And I'm just in Northern California. There, Christianity stands out a little bit more. But where you are a place where there's sort of cultural Christianity, you can see the non-Christians looking at the Christians saying, you don't look any different. You seem to be just about as anxious as I am. You seem stressed. Your behavior doesn't seem any different. And so a lot lot of them are just simply wondering, if indeed you think Christianity is the answer, why is it I don't see it in your life? So there's an importance not only in teaching orthodoxy, but really challenging believers to live out a life that honors Christ before the watching world. So those are some action items that I think need to take place. And if nothing else, I don't want to give up on trying to make an impact in this next generation. But I also recognize that we do have some really significant challenges. And having fun and games in a youth group, just having a feel-good sermon, are not going to turn the culture around and certainly not going to be ministering to the body of Christ. And so uh, we need to do something different than we're doing right now. Most churches will report something like 1% or 2% of their congregation can share the gospel with a friend. And I've likened this cultural context to even less than that. People are so afraid to engage yes. anyone in a spiritual topic because of the buzzwords tolerance and hate and this type of thing. We, right. We're on our heels all the time. So when I read about the nuns or the you know some of these lower percentages, I wonder, are they just afraid— you know, I often try to encourage our church that you smile, speak the truth, be clear, be factual, and smile when you do it. Because people are angry, they're upset, they're argumentative. I can very quickly get argumentative and something can trigger in me. And I've got to ask God's spirit, Lord, would you help me to be kind to this idiot right now? You know, because this person, you love them as much as you love me. And I, I think so much of the church where, where we could do better is not only equipping them in critical thinking, but some language. You know, how do you talk about these things? You're an expert. You do this stuff on the backstroke. I've watched you for years, and you're disarming. You're kind. You don't take the bait. And our culture, frankly, they want to see people take the bait. They want to see the TikTok or the Instagram, you know, vile stuff going on. That's more entertainment value than talking, you know, in a mannered way. But well, I'm glad you have hope for our future. I can be an Eeyore on most days. <laughs> I go, Lord, I don't know what you're up to. I'm just trying to be faithful. And it does create a cocoon for too many Christians. We get afraid. Right. We draw back. I'm not as smart as Kirby. I don't know what to say. I can't answer things like Norm Geisler did. I can't answer things like, you know, Chuck's one dollar or whatever. I always feel like, you know, so they give up. And right. the other thing that I'm concerned about, and I hope you got some better news for me, when we're talking about these younger folks, what are they getting trained in seminary? What are these men, and now a lot of women, what are they coming out with? I'm all for women's studies. I'm all for cultural education. I'm all for missionality. They're not teaching the Bible, Kirby. Right. Well, that's why we need to teach the Bible. First of all, we need to teach it in seminary. We need to teach it there as well. And you were saying, what do I say? You don't always have to say anything. You can ask questions. You know, one of the people that I love doing interviews with is Greg Kokel, and he talks about in his book, Tactics, which is now, I think it's the 10th anniversary of that book. You don't always have to know everything. You can ask questions. Why did you say that? Uh, well, why do you think that's true? And I find that oftentimes my conversations with a non-believer really are questions because we sometimes want to get to the point. 
you know, and evangelism is occasionally throwing the long bomb, but most <laughs> of the time it's the five-yard gain. You know yeah, as well yeah. as I do. If I can warn somebody up from minus five to zero, that is a gain in the kingdom. And so sometimes I'm dealing with that. Now, what I'm finding is, is because we have this whole culture this is primarily Generation Y and Generation Z. A great book that illustrates that is The Coddling of the American Mind by uh, Jonathan Haidt. Uh, and I've had him on my program, even though he's not a Christian. There is sort of a non-judgmentalism. So what you have is there's maybe actually more openness. You know, I know you go out and witness and you run into somebody who's got their fists in the air and they're fighting with you. But most of the time, they kind of are curious and they're open to the idea. And so asking questions, saying, well, how did you come to that view? How's that working for you? I mean, there's some really obvious starter questions that can help with this idea of evangelism. And you're right. We found that uh, very few of the Generation Y or Generation Z are witnessing because they have really embraced what I call the gospel of non-judgmentalism. You know, it used to be when I would speak at a youth group, uh, the most uh, quoted verse was John 3.16. Most quoted verse now is Matthew 7, 1. Judge not that you might not be judged. And I always have to clarify that they've got a complete misunderstanding of that because the Bible does call for us to be good stewards, uh, to have a sound mind, to test the spirits, to use discernment and those kinds of things. But nevertheless, because that's kind of the prevailing ethos, most of the time if you say, have you ever really thought about what the Bible says? The answer oftentimes is, no, I don't know anything about that. And since we're in Dallas, I'll use this example because I'm in Dallas and one of my friends actually was teaching for years in the Dallas Art Institute and they would do art, but they would also do architecture. So she would take them into various buildings. And you know, Michael, when we would uh, walk in and she would walk into a church, almost half the students would say, this is the first time I've ever been in a church. Wow. Now, you have to think about the fact that we're dealing with a generation that is not churched because people are saying, well, they're going to come back to church, you know, and you've heard the old phrase from the movie, if you build it, they will come. Well, we built 350,000 churches in this country. They're not coming uh, <laughs> because they don't think the church has anything to offer. But if you're interacting with them or you're asking questions and listening to them, you may have a real opportunity to begin to share the gospel and help them see that there's a connection between their problems and their struggles and what the Bible has to say. Well, I appreciate the long ball analogy because in my uh, fledgling opportunities to share Christ with in when when you're a pastor, you know, it's your toast before the conversation begins because you're a preacher and you're selling something. And it takes a long time relationally to hang out with a non-Christian friend before, you know, you earn the right even to ask some of those questions. That's uh, right. And I always ask about their background, their upbringing. Tell me, what did you grow up in a church? What was that like? And you're right. People will share. People love to talk about themselves, generally speaking, but it is a long ball game. But I think we, you know, the intentionality is where maybe we fail. Last kind of comment slash question. You mentioned authenticity a lot. When I was at Moody, I made the comment that these kids have more courage than I did at their age. They'll go to Rwanda, Afghanistan, Iran. They'll do anything. They have so much courage, but they have no biblical knowledge. And it's such a striking, you know, they're authentic with shoes, you know, boots on the ground. They'll go clean up after a storm or a hurricane in a heartbeat without thinking twice about it. But share Christ with a friend, open the Bible and really get into it with, you know, a Bible study. It doesn't happen. It's all experiential. My uh, observation has been 
We are a horizontal Christian culture. It's I, me, my. It's how it relates to me, my experience, my emotions, my feelings. And we've moved far away from God's word, God's spirit, and God's people. So that's my soapbox. Land us on an encouraging note, Kirby. <laughs> well, again, we have to be faithful, whatever that is. And we recognize that we live in a world right now where there is narcissism and postmodernism and syncretism, all those big issues that we've already talked about, all those isms. But God has called for us to be faithful. And as discouraging as some of these statistics are, they're really a call to action rather than a reason to be discouraged and also a reason to come back to first principles, you know, whether it's the NFL and they've had summer training or whether it's baseball and they had spring training, sometimes it's time to get back to the basics. And so we recognize that that is important in athletics. I think it's really important right now. And my call for the church is to come back and teach first principles, teach Bible and encourage people in evangelism and apologetics. And then we'll leave the results to God. There you go. Kirby Anderson, president of Probe Ministries, also the director of the nationally syndicated Point of View radio talk show. You can find them online, K-E-R-B-Y, also in our show notes. Kirby, thanks for your friendship over the years, your faithfulness. I love what you've done, what you continue to do, and I, I pray God's blessing on you and encouragement in this chapter. Well, thank you for letting me be in context today. <laughs> Take care. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonamorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.